You are listening to School of Talk. We are creating a world where every child experiences the power of a great teacher. We believe education is the answer. It has the power to conduct change, improve lives, unlock ideas, create opportunities, and build connections. It's the single greatest investment we can make today to create a better tomorrow. That's why we're on a mission to train, inform, and inspire educators around the world. Each week, we dive into a topic related to education, teaching, and learning. Whether you're an educator by trade or an educator by spirit, we've got something for you. Open up your mind and get ready to soak in some new learning. Class is in session. If you're an educator, you're likely used to teaching a diverse group of learners. You probably have students with different backgrounds, interests, talents, and skill sets. You also likely have students with varying physical, developmental, emotional, and sensory needs. But how can one teacher support such a large group of learners? How can we ensure we're meeting each student's needs and creating an inclusive space where all students have the opportunity to learn? How do we do all of this without working astronomically long hours to create multiple activities? Well, today's episode features educational inclusion specialist, Shelley Moore. Shelley is a highly sought after teacher, storyteller, researcher, and consultant. She has worked with school districts and community organizations throughout both Canada and the U.S. Today, Shelley joined the School of Talk podcast to discuss inclusive education and teaching for all learners. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Shelley. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have actually followed your social platforms for quite some time, so I'm fangirling a little bit. (laughs) No, I'm so happy to be here. This is awesome. Thank you for all you do. I was wondering if we could just start off with a little bit about you. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you got into teaching um, yeah. why you became a teacher just a little bit of your background um yeah so I oh my goodness so I grew up in Alberta Canada and I just like didn't have a really great schooling experience I mean there was like pockets of 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 good years but just overall I just it was never really a place that I felt super successful and so I just kind of you know trials and tribulations um when I was trying to figure out what to do with myself as an adult I'm just like I'm gonna be a teacher and blow it up blow education up because it's just not working for enough kids so um I'm now I was thinking about this yesterday I'm almost like 20 years in which does just feels wild to me because I feel like I'm still 25 it goes by fast it goes really fast um and I'm currently um working on my PhD and trying to finish that. Congratulations. And, uh, just working with schools and districts around the world, trying to figure out this inclusion question, because it's a big one. And that brings me to my next question for you, inclusion. I know that that's a topic that you're particularly passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit about what is inclusive education? Yeah, and you know, it, it seems like such a simple question, but it <laughs> it is, you know, because you can answer it from two different perspectives. You can answer it from... A philosophical perspective which is inclusion means everyone belongs inclusion means everyone is with their peers all the time like I mean there's so many philosophical but when you kind of get to the practical implications of inclusion it can look very different 
from student to student and school to school. And so, and my, my definition has evolved over time. If you, to ask me again in a year, it might change. But today, what my definition of inclusion is, is that uh, all students have opportunity to learn alongside their, their peers in community-based schools. Um, but also understanding that uh, sometimes the infrastructure isn't in place for kids to be successful. And so I think it's the very careful balance of making sure everyone has opportunity but also not forcing kids into places they don't want to be. <laughs> and so I always kind of at the end of the day think like, how are we increasing places where students feel like they belong? You know, and so if they feel successful in one place, let's start there. But um, we have to increase those places to as many, as many different contexts as possible. And so um, as an educator and as school systems, you know, we have to make sure those opportunities are there so that, uh, students and families have more choices around what education looks like for them without just mm -hmm. them being forced around into these situations that are very frustrating <laughs> for kids and for families where, you know, inclusion, um, the dream is there, but the reality, it's not, it's not in place. And so I think, you know, depending on who you ask, that that question is very different. But at the end, like this, honestly, I think it's about every kid needs opportunities to learn um, and access curriculum with their peers every day. I think that is a very beautiful way of summarizing it um, yeah. in a simple way for all of us to understand and empathize with. Yeah. You know, we all deserve opportunities to, to mm -hmm. learn and grow and develop. Where would you say a good place for teachers to start with inclusive education would be? Um, I think the most important step for inclusive education is to believe that it's possible. I think probably the biggest barrier that I come across in educators is the dreaded response I always get, which is they're not, they're not going to get anything out of this, right? Talking about often kids with intellectual disabilities and exposing them and giving them opportunities for curriculum and this kind of belief that um, they can't do it. And, and it's that sense of presuming competence or potential, which is the easiest and the hardest barrier to overcome. It's the easiest because it costs nothing. It requires zero resources to believe that it's possible and to give students the benefit of the doubt that they're going to get learn something. Um, but it's the hardest because you can't force someone to, to think that. You can't you can't force someone to believe that it's possible. And you know, I I just it, it's 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 very it's very hard. And so I think if you can believe that it's possible, trust the process a little bit. Um, I think everything every I've worked K to 12 in in many many academic courses um, anything can be made accessible and I think once we realize that you realize that um, the barrier to inclusion is not kids capability levels but it's our inability to make things accessible wow that's incredible I love that and mm -hmm. when you're saying you're talking about making things more accessible does it mean that inclusive education is going to be more work for teachers does that mean that we have to do double the work to adjust things for every student? I think that I, I understand why people think that because all of us grew up in a system where the goal was to make everyone the same. All of us did, right? We were taught, we grew up in a system. We were taught to teach in a system where everyone needs to learn the same thing in the same way in the same amount of time with the same level of complexity. Um, but I think once we realize that uh, that's no longer really the goal, I mean, I mean, standardization off will play a role depending on where you are, but um, there's very, very few places where 
the heavy hammer of standardization is the only stake. And so if we can really balance and kind of shift from standardization to standards-based learning and standard-based goals, you realize that that curricular goals are designed to be conceptual and accessible. And so it's not necessarily doing more work because, I mean, like, when I first started teaching and I'm like, look at all these students with disabilities, like, how are we going to meet their individual needs? But I always kind of think instead of looking at how do we design individual education plans for every kid, which is impossible, it's, you know, where can we all start? Where's a place where we can all start to be successful? It's so much easier to add on complexity than it is to take it away. And so, you know, thinking about teaching on a continuum instead of on a benchmark and thinking, okay, so where do I need to start where everyone is successful? And often if you think about that one student who needs the most support, they're not the only one that need the access. And so you end up catching more kids. And that's kind of the heart of universal design for learning, right? So like, I understand why people think it's more work, but um, when you learn how to do it and you see what's possible, you realize it's actually, I think it's easier. It's, it's different work than we know. And so that's my slogan. It's not more work, it's different work. Um, but you know, and I think it's okay that people don't know what to do, but it's, it's no longer, it's no longer okay to not do anything about it. Mm -hmm. I think it's the place where we're at in a lot of, in a lot of equity conversations. Um, it's okay. It's okay to not know, but it's time to shift. It's time to move. Right. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you is a little bit of shifting. It's first shifting your mindset. Then it's shifting how we look at things. It's like flipping this idea of how we plan and how we prepare our lessons. So instead of starting with this is the activity and this is how I'm going to change it for this child and this child, Mm -hmm. it's this is like the concept that we're trying to grasp. Where can we all enter? And then how can I layer it to make it more challenging in different ways for different students? Mm -hmm. Michelle, that's it. You got it. It's perfect. (laughs) Do you have an example maybe of um, a teacher or – an activity that you've seen that was done like really well in this way? Yeah, no, I mean, I I know exactly what to share with you. Are you interested in becoming a fully certified teacher? Well, Classroom is here to help support you throughout your teaching career. Classroom's nationally accredited, state-approved teacher certification program is certifying, developing, and placing amazing teachers like you at the head of classrooms around the country. With Classroom's teacher certification program, you can become a fully licensed teacher in as few as nine months. The best part is that the coursework can be done 100% online, so you can study on your schedule. The program offers the flexibility to work while you earn your teaching license, so there's no time away from income. Classroom is pleased to announce a new licensure opportunity for aspiring teachers, mild to moderate disabilities, special education, grades K to 12. That's right, you can now get certified to teach special education and support our most vulnerable students because they deserve excellent teachers like you who will prepare them for a bright future. So throw away everything you thought you knew about getting your teaching license and head over to go.classroom.com podcast to download a free brochure and learn about the program. That's go.klssroom.com podcast to grab your free brochure go.classroom.com slash podcast. Amazing educators start with classroom.
I was observing a classroom, a high school, grade uh, English nine, mm-hmm. grade nine English, <laughs> where people say it's not possible. Well, I'm going to tell you what happened. Okay. Um. So, so this the 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 lesson that I was observing was um this teacher was was kicking off a unit around um memoir writing. So students had to like really like dig into a memory and and write about it, and they were having a hard time thinking about memories because they're teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. and teenagers are just like, I'm hungry. And uh, <laughs> there's a there was a little guy in this class uh, who has autism and uh, communicates with an augmentative communication device. And so you could you could sit here and say, oh well, he can't do this, he can't write, he can't talk, he, all the things he can't do. But what the teacher did that was different. What she asked the, the other question, what can he do? And this this student um, could do a lot. <laughs> so what she did was mm-hmm. she took this idea of memoir writing and she's like, hey, what's the essence here? What's the concept? Um, what do I want all the kids to be able to do? And, and what she realized was that, you know, memories are really evoked by our senses. And so she created something called Memory Lane as this kickoff to this unit, which was she Googled things that were popular in the like the first five years of these kids' life. So like so like uh, <laughs> um, TV or cartoons that they that they would have watched okay. when they were young, um, fashion, music, all of these things. And so the kids went through all of the kids went through all of these different sensory stations. She brought in cinnamon to evoke memories of, of food and baking. And oh my goodness. It was incredible. And so like, uh, so all these kids are walking through and they're having a blast, right? Cause everything mm-hmm. is based on sights and sounds and movement and, 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 and sense of smell and touch. She had like flannel, like a flannel baby blanket for them to hold. And it oh just goodness. was, it was incredible. And, and I asked the students afterwards, like, like just typical, like students with and without disabilities, like how, how was that lesson for you? And they're like, one student was just like, that was a lesson. I thought we were playing a game. And I'm like, well, <laughs> how do, why do you say that? They're like, well, because it was fun. It wasn't hard. And I'm like, well, did it help you was my question, you know, cause you had to come up with a memory. He's like, oh yeah, no, I had like five memories after going through that sensory, sensory walk. Yeah. And then the student with autism um, was able to participate in all of that completely independently, right? Because those are the things that he had strengths in. He can, he can see, he can smell, he can mm-hmm. feel, he can listen. Um, he loved the music station because those were those would have been his his childhood memories as well. But because he was able to do that independently, um, he was able to do that with his peers. And then his peers started interacting with him and asking him about his memories. And um, we had contacted uh, his family ahead of time to come up with a memory that we knew he was he really loved it and so um at the end of the sensory station he had a couple of choices in terms of memories in his life and he picked um a family vacation to hawaii um because the teacher had the scent of kids sunscreen oh like it just was like you know these kids are in grade nine and you know a lot of people are just like oh well you know you don't want to simplify it too much much and i'm like you know what that wasn't simple that was it was it was bigger. It was a. It, they were big ideas. They were um, connecting to that concept of what 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 is a memory and why is that? Why would you want to write about that? Not just here's a task, pick a memory. Like it just she made it really real for all of the kids. But you know that that lesson was ex, was like explicitly designed for that student with autism, 
and everyone started there. It wasn't an adaptation. It wasn't a modification. Like everyone started there and it actually helped everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a part of sharing a memory just like everybody else. Um, he used his communication device, but he talked about the senses, which is what she was trying to get all of the students to do. And so I just like, I remember just um, watching that lesson and being like, this, it's, it's, it's masterful. Like it's, it's art when you see this it is- and then you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't yeah. unsee the possibility of that. And she wasn't trying to change who he was as a person, mm-hmm. wasn't trying to fix some deficit area. It was building on what he could do. I love that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm also hearing this is a place where every student was engaged. It sounds like yeah. there was probably no classroom management, you know, needed because mm-hmm. these kids were loving it. They didn't even know that they were doing they a managed lesson. each other. Yeah, exactly. They managed there each was... other. They were up out of their desks. They were moving around. Yeah. They were able to connect. And, you know, we think about like the strengths of adolescence, like that's what it is, movement and community and connection. And so, you know, it wasn't just what this, the student with autism could do. It was all of their strengths mm-hmm. and interests were harnessed in that lesson. And it just was like, this is it. This is what we're trying to do. You know? mm. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. That's a perfect, no it gives me such a good grasp on, you know, what does this look like in practice? Mm. And what would you say that school leaders should know about inclusive education? Like how do we make our schools more inclusive from the top? Yeah. I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that there's a misunderstanding that teachers can do this by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, inclusion is is not an I model. It's a we model. It, it relies on collaborative expertise of multiple perspectives. And like there's, I've never met a teacher who knows everything, who has the expertise of every need in her, in their classroom, his or her, or their classroom. And so I think that you know, as an administrator or an inclusive leader, I think it's really, really important that if we want this to happen, um, we have to make it look easier than what's already happening, which means we have to create opportunities as a part of the culture of the school where teachers work together, where support teachers and classroom teachers come together during the day, not on their lunchtime, not after school, where, you know, it's part of the structure of the building um, where they have opportunities to connect over time um, to anticipate needs, to be able to plan lessons on the go, and um, also giving teachers choice in terms of what collaboration looks like. Not all teachers want to co-teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some teachers want to co-plan. Some teachers want some co-reflection and some consultation. So I always kind of think, you know, as a support teacher, um, one of the, probably the most powerful uh, advice that I was given was just like kids, you want to meet teachers where they're at as well. And so giving um, classroom teachers an option of what does support look like for you? Um, does it look like, you know, you know, and some teachers will choose co-teaching and some teachers will choose co-planning and some teachers will choose station teaching and, and understanding that there's there's different ways to do this. Mm-hmm. Um and the more that we give teachers choice, just like kids, the more they're going to engage as well. Um, the other thing that I think is important for school leaders to know is that as a special education teacher, it was important that I was free. Like I didn't, I, I wasn't enrolling. I didn't have students um, in my classroom for the whole day. And so like there was still a time where I had students, but like of our seven blocks, I had students enrolled in a class for one of those and the rest I was out in the building. And so a lot of trust. Mm-hmm. A lot of trust for teachers um, to connect and use times in different ways um, and to, to the space to be innovative, right? Like we're working in a in a system that wasn't designed to be inclusive. So we're going to have to have space for creativity and innovation and, and trust to use that time in meaningful ways, depending on who we're working with. 
Yeah, that's a common um, message that I hear from teachers. It's, you know, asking for that, that trust to be able to share, like from our experiences, what we need with, you know, the decision makers. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And, you know, I always think when if if there's ever pushback from an educator, it's, um, I think, you know, it's the same as kids, right? Like people push back when they don't know what to do and they push back when they don't feel like they have a voice um, or, or a stake in the conversation and they push back um, when they're, when they don't understand. And so I think it took me a long time to realize that. I thought for a long time teachers were staging a coup against inclusion, that they just didn't believe it. But, you know, over time, I'm like, if I could give myself, go back in time 20 years, and give myself advice and it's like you know it's very rare that people don't believe in this philosophically it's how do we support them practically which is 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 really where the conversation is is needed i love that thank you for sharing um and just to be mindful of your time i know we're we're almost out of time here is there a message or an idea or recommendation that you could leave us with yes this one, I always get I always get in trouble because I get into Twitter fights about this one. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I think I think and I, and again, like I understand why this happens, but I think um, we talked a little bit about the misunderstanding around like that educators, classroom teachers have to do this by themselves. Like that's something that needs to be like debunked. I think the other one that we really need to talk about is the use of resources. Um, there's a, I mean, of course, inclusion needs resources, like without a doubt. And when I say resources, I mean um, people, funding, and time, right? Like we need resources for sure. But I think that um, in most places that I've that I've visited and, and worked with, there's also a lot of resources that are being used to counteract inclusive, inclusive efforts. And so I think if we kind of really look at how to use resources in optimal ways to say, how do we support inclusion at every kind of like, infrastructural level whether that's the student the classroom the school the district the you know the jurisdiction mm-hmm. to say okay what resources are not being used to support inclusion and how do we uh, reallocate redistribute and support some of those some of those contexts to shift um, but at the other side um, I also think that one of the, the 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 number one request I hear for inclusion to be possible is that I need an EA or I need a para Mm-hmm. And absolutely, we need EAs and paras, but often they're seen as the solution to the inclusion problem. And I'll walk into a classroom that has four EAs and four kids with disabilities, and that's actually, um, it's actually not. <laughs> it actually, um, a one-to-one is a para or an educational system actually is counteracting the goals of inclusion. And so as much as I think, you know, EAs are such a critical, critical part of the conversation of inclusion, they themselves are not the support, they're a resource. And so people are only going to be as useful as the plan that's put into place. And if we start looking at our support staff as plans for the community instead of a plan for one kid, I think that we're going to reduce a lot of the barriers that kids are having in terms of anxiety, in terms of challenging behavior. Um, as a, To be just working with an adult on the side is very isolating as opposed to how do I work with and be a part of this community that absolutely has an EA, but you know that EA is not assigned to a student in that one-to-one way. And so, in, especially parents, because they've been taught that that's what to advocate for is a one-to-one EA. Um, it's 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 actually detrimental to students. And so, I think you know, if I were just to, to give a piece of advice, it would be um, if you have a, if you have a child or a student in your class with a disability, advocate for the class. 
you know what what you would ask for one person ask for the whole for the whole class um so if you have if you want an ea say how do i get my class to have an ea not how do i get the student to have an ea um because it becomes more of a parenting model instead of a dividing and conquering model because students do not feel included when it's a divide and conquer model and so using resources in ways that support community instead of um supporting individual needs because it's just it's not good for kids Thank you. That is such an important shift and one that mm. I myself, I'll admit, like never considered, mm. you know, being a teacher. I had EAs in my class and, you know, and the focus valuable. always was uh, inc- oh, yeah. the best. We need them. Yeah, I don't we want need them. to misunderstand me. We need them. But I think we put them in really unfair situations sometimes. Yeah. Focusing them on to the do. one child rather than yeah. how can we as a team like support this class. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You. you got it, Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again to Shelly Moore for joining us on the podcast today. If you'd like to know more about Shelly or grab some of her free resources, we will include all of her links in the show notes of today's episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of School of Talk. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure you subscribe to the podcast. If you love today's episode, share this out with a friend. Class is dismissed. Thank you.